Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we? Pretty good, pretty good. You guys are all like the good Christians, right? You didn't stay home and watch the football game, yeah? So because you're such good Christians, I'll give you an update on the score here real quick. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I know that's like heresy right now. No, I won't say anything right now. Uh, For those that are new or visiting, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Arbor. So good to see all of you. Uh, This past week, we studied, we started a new study in the book of Nehemiah called The Road to uh, Renewal. And it's based on really this incredible story in the Old Testament about this regular, ordinary guy named Nehemiah. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can go and get those out right now and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today, Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week, we talked about the importance of making space for renewal, the importance of making space for renewal. Nehemiah made space for renewal because in his ordinary, regular, routine life of being a cupbearer to the king of Assyria, he heard some really bad news. He, he was just going about doing his regular thing when he was confronted with the reality of what was going on in his homeland. Remember, we learned this last week that just 140 years previous to this story that we're reading about here here in Nehemiah, things were not going well in Jerusalem. 140 years previous, the evil king Nebuchadnezzar just went through Jerusalem, went through Israel and devastated the land. He, he destroyed their culture. He destroyed the people, kind of like what the Packers did to the, par- the Bears this past Sunday. We're not going to talk about that though, okay? Because we're also not going to talk about what the Rams did to the Seahawks, okay? We're just truce, okay? Truce. Nehemiah heard this news, right, about the devastation in Israel, in Jerusalem, and he had a choice. He had a choice. He could allow the news that he heard into his head, but not into his heart, and go about living his regular, comfortable, routine, ordinary life, or he could be brave, he could be bold, and he could let that bad news into his heart, and he could do something about it. And what did Nehemiah choose to do? Well, he chose to do something about it. He chose to let that bad news into his heart and he chose to allow that to break his heart and he mourned over it and he wept over it. He didn't go out and find the smartest people that he knew right away to make a plan and go over to Jerusalem. No, no, he didn't do those things. He started by making space for renewal. He stopped and he wept. He fell down and he prayed And then he got up and he moved. That is how he made space for renewal. And if we as a people want to make space for renewal and see renewal in our lives individually, but also as a church and in our community, these are the things we must do. We saw this last week. We must stop and weep. We have to fall down and pray. And then we have to get up and move. After we allow our hearts to break over what breaks God's heart and and, and we go through this season of holy discontentment, We then enter into, if we so choose, a season of preparation. This is a season that is built on late nights and early mornings in quiet spaces with the Spirit of God and His Word where we're calling out to God to begin His renewing work first in us individually and then see that renewing work spread into our church and into our community. But the renewal process doesn't stop there. It doesn't, it doesn't start and stop with having this thing that breaks our hearts and then going into this season of preparation. There is a lot more going on. In our instant gratification world, our outlooks, our desires have been shaped and molded by this idea that if we want something, all we have to do is click a button. If we want something, all we have to do is swipe right and it can be ours. But listen, that's not the way renewal comes about. 
That's not the way renewal happens. I, I want to say that's not our reality, but sadly, that's the reality we live in right now. Our reality is one that is based on consumption. All of us in this room, all of us listening online right now, we have been shaped by this culture of consumerism. If there's one way in which all of us have been shaped by, by the culture that we live in right now, it's, it's this proclivity toward being consumers. And this culture of consumerism has not just affected us as individual people, it has pervaded every aspect of our lives, including our faith lives, including our life here together in community as a church. It is the water that we swim in, and many of us are entirely unaware of it. We're entirely unaware of it. One of my favorite writers, his name is David Foster Wallace. He uh, gave this commencement speech at a college a long time ago, and he tells this story, and the story goes like this. He says this, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? Wallace then says this, the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest for us to see and the hardest for us to talk about. This is what it's like for us to live in the consumer culture that we live in right now. It is so ubiquitous that we're not even aware of it. And it's pervaded not just our individual lives, but our lives as Christians, as a Christian community as well. Mark Sayers, I quoted him a bunch last week from his book, Reappearing Church. He writes this, that consumer Christianity is a form of cultural Christianity that compromises the cross with self mixing the worship of God with the worship of options, personal autonomy, low commitment, and opinion over responsibility. And so what, communi- what consumer culture tells us is that, that we can have it all and that we can do it all, but then we're presented with all of these options and we are absolutely paralyzed by the options at hand. Many of you have heard of the common phrase FOMO. You know this phrase, fear of missing out. Again, what many of you are probably experiencing right now is the Seahawks are playing a football game at this very moment, FOMO. But I came across this article that added a new term to FOMO. It's FOBO. Have you heard of this one before? FOBO, fear of better options. Fear of better options. And in this article, the writer states this. I noticed that my classmates and I were always optimizing We hedged, lived in a world of maybes, and were paralyzed at the prospect of actually committing to something out of fear that we might be choosing something that wasn't the absolute perfect option. I know some of you have felt this before, right? I know you've felt this. You felt the pressure that there's something better out there, a better option for you, and this fear of that better option has paralyzed you. And after a while, it can just feel better to do nothing at all. And, and, and we find ourselves sitting on couches, critiquing those who are actually going after something, trying to achieve success, while also growing strangely jealous of the success that they're achieving. This way of living prevents renewal. This way of living prevents renewal. So, so what do we do? Here's what we must do. We must move from a posture of consuming to a posture of contending. 
We have to move from a posture of consuming to contending because when we contend, we become champions of renewal. When we choose to get out of the chair and contend and do something, we become champions of renewal. Again, remember, 140 years after the initial destruction of Jerusalem, this ordinary everyday guy named Nehemiah was suddenly brokenhearted for the plight of his people. And I want to remind you again, he was not a pastor. He was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was not a contractor. He was not an Instagram influencer. He was just a regular, normal, ordinary guy a cupbearer to the king. In other words, this guy didn't have any formal appointment by some king. All he had was God-ordained passion. That's all he had. And I don't know who this is gonna speak to today, but there are some of you in this room today, this morning, listening, and you don't have a position, you don't have formal experience, but what you do have right now is you have a passion from God about something that matters and about something that is breaking your heart and about a change you want to see and you want to move from being this passive consumer to being an active contender for renewal in your life, in your family's life, in this church community, and in the world around you. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, in Nehemiah today, I wanna, I wanna highlight and show four things that Nehemiah does to move from being a consumer to a contender, okay? And here's the first one. We move from a posture of consuming to contending when we seek God persistently. When we seek God persistently, again and again and again, we see Nehemiah praying and praying again and again. And some of you might be like, okay, Ryan, I got that. I think this was like the second point of your sermon. Last week, we're supposed to um, fall down and pray and seek God persistently. I get it, okay? It's gonna involve a lot of prayer. No, no, listen, I don't think we totally get it. I don't think we understand until we're able to do the persistent, consistent work of going before God and seeking him persistently and faithfully. We won't be ready. We won't be ready. You see, we see Nehemiah at the very beginning, chapter one, verse one. It says he starts praying in the month of Kislev. When's that? When's Kislev? Well, it's like late November, early December. And then in chapter one, verse one, Nehemiah finally is about to approach the king. In which month does it say? The month of what? The month of Nisan. Now, if you don't think I have like five terrible dad jokes about that month of Nisan, you don't know me very well, but we're gonna put those off for later. He prays until the month of Nisan, which is like four months after the month of Kislev. Four months What I want us to notice here is that for four months, he's fasting, he's praying, he's mourning, he's weeping, he's seeking the God of heaven persistently. And why is he doing this? Why why is he going before God? Well, Well, I don't think we fully understand how unusual it would be for someone like Nehemiah to even begin thinking about approaching the king of Assyria with a request like this. You see, it was someone like Nehemiah's job to keep bad news away from the king. You never wanted to be the guy to deliver bad news to the king. Especially in this ancient Near Eastern culture, that was like a death sentence. And so so this this is weighing heavily on Nehemiah. It's a burden that he's carrying. Look at chapter one, verse one. Chapter two, verse one. Nehemiah writes this. I had not been depressed in the king's presence. Like ever before, never been sad. Been happy-go-lucky cupbearer Nehemiah. 
So the king said to me, why do you appear to be depressed when you aren't sick? You don't have COVID. You're fine. What's going on? What can this be other than sadness of heart? You see here the intimacy of the relationship that the king and Nehemiah had. He could tell, by the way, Nehemiah was walking in the room. Something was on Nehemiah's heart. And verse four, it says this. The king responded, what is it you're seeking? And then Nehemiah writes, then I quickly prayed to the God of heaven. He quickly prayed in this moment. And this is important. This prayer here, it wasn't some sort of like weekend retreat where he got away and prayed. Nehemiah's already done that for like four months And he's walking with God and he's praying as he's walking with God and approaching the king. Listen, I want us to pray both ways. I want us to pray long, powerful prayers, times where we're alone with God, seeking him out for renewal in our lives, joining with other people. I just want, I have to stop and celebrate that this past Wednesday, we had nearly 20 people gathered together for our time of prayer on Wednesday mornings. And listen, folks, there's space for more. If you want to join, Wednesday mornings at 7, 9.30 a.m., we had 20 people gathered together. And listen, when we see God begin to move, it's going to be because of the faithfulness of, of those dear saints in that room seeking God persistently week after week after week. But, but, but listen, I, I hope you'll pray both ways, not just those intentional longer times of prayer with God. But, 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 but that so that you, you have this nearness with God so that as you're walking and, and, and you're living your life, there is this intimacy and this closeness where you can throw up those flare prayers. You can send those little text messages to God and you can be like, God, I need your help. God, I, I need your words. I need your wisdom in this moment right here. Listen, we move from a posture of consuming to contending when we seek God persistently. Nehemiah sought God for four months before he went to the king. And we need to seek God with a similar passion if we want to see renewal in our lives individually and in our community. Here's the second thing I want us to see from the life of Nehemiah today. We move from a posture of consuming to contending when we define the vision with precision. It rhymed, did you get that? Define the the vision with precision. Um, I hope you'll understand that for, for most of us, it's not a lack of passion that's our problem. It's a lack of precision. It's a lack of precision. It's not defining specifically what it is that God has called you to do. And I want to show you this here in Nehemiah 2. And I want, you, I want you to see the crystal clear vision that Nehemiah shares with the king. Chapter 2, verse 4. Again, the king responded, what is it that you're seeking? And then I quickly prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if the king is so inclined, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, dispatch me to Judah, to the city with the graves of my ancestors, so that I can rebuild it. That's it. One sentence. Absolute clarity in that moment. He's like, please send me to Judah so that I can rebuild it. Seek God persistently. Define the vision with precision. Let me tell you real quick what Nehemiah didn't do in this moment, okay? 
He didn't get all nervous in that moment and approach the king and, and fumble about his words and was like, oh, hey, hey, king, um, yeah, so you know I've got like this Aunt Millie that I've talked about like a few times and, and she lives over in Jerusalem. Well, she's got like these three kids and, and one of them, his name is Hanani and uh, I bumped into him the other day. We call him Hanny for short. I'm not sure if you knew that, but, 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 but I bumped into him and he was telling me all about like this like bad thing that was happening in Jerusalem and he sent me this article and it was kind of confusing and, 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 and so, so I, I read it and I, I felt felt like maybe, maybe I could go there on like this kind of like mission trip and, and go see what's going on and like help rebuild it. Uh, but, but I wasn't sure if that would be a good idea, if you think that would be a good idea. So I was just wondering like maybe I could go over there for a little bit and check it out. Like what, what, what do you think? That's not what Nehemiah did. That's not what Nehemiah did. In one sentence, he let the king know exactly what was on his heart. Again, for most of us, it's not a lack of passion that's our problem. It's a lack of precision. And so what is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to do? How is God inviting you to contend specifically? Again, the, the consumer culture that we live in and exist in and breathe every single day, it has trained us to sit back and wait for bargains and for benefits. We are loosely committing to things and we're just kind of letting others do the job. That's our world right now. Essentially, consumer culture is risk-averse. It's risk-averse. It teaches us to run from responsibility because the commitment to responsibility may limit our other options. The philosopher uh, Nassim Taleb, he notes this, that we are witnessing a fundamental change, the disappearance of a sense of heroism, a shift away from certain respect and power to those who take downside risks for others. We have seen a shift away from this sort of mentality. And this mentality is a vital component to seeing renewal happen in our lives and in our community. Listen, to seek God persistently and then define our vision with precision, this is completely countercultural to the world in which we live right now. But listen, we need people not everyone, but we need a select few of people who are willing to make sacrifices and make big commitments to seek God for renewal. In your own life, personally, here at Arbor, in the community around us, and so again, what is it that God is calling you to do? In one sentence, what would that be? What, what has God laid on your heart? Do you even know yet what God has laid on your heart? Again, if we want to begin to see renewal in our lifetimes, we have to move from this posture of consuming to this posture of contending. And the third thing we see here in the life of Nehemiah is we do this when we make plans intentionally. We make plans intentionally. What do they say? The problem with a goal without a plan is it's just a wish, right? And many of us are just wishing we just have this thing on our heart and we're just wishing and we don't have a plan. Listen, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is get organized and make a plan. And Nehemiah's got a plan. He spent a lot of time in prayer, but he also has this plan. Look at verse six. Then the king with his consort sitting behind, beside him, that'd be like the queen and some other important people replied, how long would your trip take? And when would you return? And since the king was pleased to send me, he gave him a time. Nehemiah knew exactly how long this might take. And then I said to the king, if the king is so inclined, let him give me letters for the governors 
of trans-Euphrates that will enable me to travel safely until I reach Judah, and a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the king's nature preserve, so that he will give me timber for beams for the gates of the fortress adjacent to the temple and for the city wall and the house to which I will go. So what does Nehemiah do here? He's got this plan, and what does he ask for in this plan? He just asks for two things. He's like, king, I need protection to travel hundreds of miles across the land all the way to Jerusalem, and I need provision. I need material. I need the things that that we're actually going to use to build the gates, to build the wall, to reconstruct this city, God. I need protection. I need provision. And then he says this in verse 9. So the king granted me these requests, for the good hand of my God was on me. So again, how, how did Nehemiah begin to seek renewal? How did he move from this posture of, of consuming to this posture of contending for renewal? Just this regular, ordinary dude who, who was the cupbearer to the king of Assyria. How did he do it? Well, he sought God persistently. And as he sought God persistently, God was guiding his steps. God's spirit was leading him in his interactions. And then he made some intentional plans, shared those with the king. Some of us might be like, but this is a Bible story. Of course it's going to work out perfectly like this. Like, that's why it's written down. That's why we've got it hundreds of years later because it's in the Bible. Like, my thing that I have a burden for, like, there's no way I could even begin to make a dent in that thing. I I look at what God has possibly put in front of me and I don't even know where to begin. Listen, here, your plan doesn't have to be perfect in order for you to put your hand to the work. Your plan doesn't have to be perfect in order for you to put your hand to the work that God has for you. And, and here, here, here's what's better than no plan at all, to just do the next right thing that's in front of you. Just do the next right thing because oftentimes if we look at like the big picture of what's in front of us and like all the things we wanna see change in our lives, all the things that we'd like to see God do in this church, all the things that we'd want to see God do in our surrounding community, we can look at that big picture and we can get completely overwhelmed, right? It can be so overwhelming when God simply just asks us to do the next right thing, step by step by step. Listen, success isn't accomplishing some grand vision that you can like be proud of. Success in God's economy is just being faithful with what's right in front of you right now. It's taking that next right step. Seek God persistently. Define your vision with precision. Make a plan intentionally. And so I'd ask, what's the next right thing for you? What's the next right step for you? Maybe it's joining us on Wednesday morning prayer. Maybe it's jumping on some serve team, even though you're not quite sure, man, is this gonna be a good fit? Am I gonna have enough time? I'm gonna make some time to serve other people. Maybe it's joining us on Tuesday nights and learning what it looks like to follow Jesus closely and grow as a disciple. Maybe it looks like adjusting your budget so that you have more, um, more room to be generous with the vision that you're excited about or to fund something like that. I don't know what it is for you, but what's your next right step? What's the next right thing God's calling you to do? Again, I want us to hear this. We live in a world where we enjoy many wonderful good things because previous generations took the next right step and made, made major sacrifices. Edwin Friedman, he, he wrote this leadership classic, A Failure of Nerve. He notes that we benefit from centuries of risk-taking by previous generations, but we currently run the risk of becoming a society of skimmers who constantly take from the top without adding significantly to its essence. 
Church, I don't want this to be my story. I, I don't want this to be our story, that we would be known as a people of skimmers, just skimming off the top, fearful of making commitments. I want us to, to see renewal in our lifetime. I wanna be a part of a people who reject this script that's been given to us and that we choose to not be consumers but that we choose to be contenders. That we would count the cost, that we'd make intentional plans and that we deep dive into the commitment that God has placed on our hearts, on the calling that he's placed on us. So again, how, how do we move? How do we as a people move from just being consumers to contending? We seek God persistently. We define the vision with precision. We make plans intentionally. One last thing here. We ignite passion in others. We ignite passion in other people. Um, uh, Again, I want to warn you what's coming next week. Um, What we're going to see is that Nehemiah is going to encounter a lot of critics, a lot of haters. Um, He's going to be leading a people that um, grow tired and grow discouraged, and they feel like failures because they've listened to this charge, they've listened to this call, but then they've traveled hundreds of miles and what we're gonna see next week is they encounter major opposition. And so if you thought that Nehemiah had this grand plan and it was all gonna work out perfectly, what we're gonna see over the next couple of weeks is that, that that couldn't be further from the truth. They're going to encounter obstacle after obstacle after obstacle and yet what we see is that every single time that they encounter obstacles with the little faith that he has, Nehemiah steps up and he tries to ignite passion in the people around him. Watch what Nehemiah does in verse 17. He says to them this, he says, you see the problem that we have. Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned. Uh, He's honest here, he's vulnerable, he's transparent about the current state of things, but then he continues on and he says this. He says, come on, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that this reproach will not continue. Here's what God's put on my heart, let's do this. And then he says this, I related to them how the good hand of my God was on me and what the king had said to me. And he's like, God's for us in this. He's been with us every step of the way. He will not leave us or forsake us. And then the people replied, look at what they said. They said, let's begin rebuilding right away. They're pumped. They're ready to go. So they readied themselves for this good project. This is what we need to do with one another. We need to share what God has placed on our heart and then we need to encourage one another. Listen, God is for us. Your God is for you. He will never leave you nor will he forsake you. He will strengthen you and empower you. He is behind what is going on here at our church. He is for this. He is for a group of people gathered together on Sunday mornings to lift up his name in worship, to hear from his word, and to go out and try to be faithful followers of Jesus week after week after week. It might seem mundane. It might seem like just another Sunday week after week. But listen, God is honored by this and he is for this. And he wants to continue to use a people like us and a place like this to bring about renewal in our lives. I know the last few years have not been easy. I know they've been really quite difficult. And that many of us find ourselves in this spot where we hear a sermon like this today and we're just like, I'm not fully ready for that yet. And that's fine. I don't think we're ready yet either. 
I think we need to continue to remain in this spot where we mourn and weep and pray and seek God for clarity. But today what we see is we see what it takes to move from that position and to move from our cultural position of being consumers to being contenders. I love what John Wesley said. He said this many, many years ago. He said, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you, watch you burn. And he's not talking about someone playing around with gasoline, okay? This is like a metaphor right now. Don't literally light yourselves on fire, okay? But man, I, I, I hear a statement like that and, and that, that, that fires me up. No pun intended. That's just what came out there. Um, but it does. I, I get excited about that, but I, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest and transparent with you. There, there's some fear and some trepidation with something like that, isn't there? This idea that like, man, I would be so committed, so on fire, so engaged for something. It just feels like, I don't know, maybe there's a better option out there. Or it feels like, man, like what if this doesn't go the way I hope it goes and there's failure. But listen, we'll never know until we take that step of faith and begin to seek renewal with our God. And, and so what does that look like for us as a church? What does that look like for you as individuals? How many of us are willing to begin to get out of our comfortable postures of consuming and move to a posture of contending? How do we do this? How do we do this? We seek God persistently. We define the vision with precision. We make plans intentionally. And we ignite passion with others. That's how we begin to become contenders for renewal, champions of renewal. Would you stand with me? as I pray. Father, the call on our lives, Lord, to pursue renewal is not a quick one, it's not an easy one. But Lord, I thank you for the many who are already beginning to do that. Those who've gathered with us on Wednesday mornings, those who are praying faithfully in their homes. Lord, I pray that people, that we would begin to see breakthrough in our lives, that we would begin to experience healing as we pray that we would begin to experience that light of hope and faith inside of us as we seek out what you would have for us individually and what you would have for us as a church. Lord God, I know that we as a church are called to make disciples, but, but, but God, we have been positioned here in this building, in this location, with the people gathered here this morning for a specific cause and a specific reason. And God, we, we, we pray that you would begin to make that clear to us, Lord as we seek you out and as we pray week after week, day after day, God, would you make that plain to us? And Lord, would you give us the boldness and the courage? God, would you give us brave hearts to move out of a posture of of consuming into a posture of contending, of entering into the arena and actually trying something and making a difference and doing something different, God? We are not going to experience renewal by repeating the same old patterns and habits. It's gonna take a change, God. So God, I pray that you would already begin to stir some hearts and raise some people up in this room here today who are listening to be agents of change, agents of renewal, people who are gonna be bold and contend, God. We don't have to be appointed by any specific person, Lord, if we're anointed by you. And so God, I pray that you would fill us with your power and send us out from this place, God. Give us faith so that we would walk day by day in trust with you and what you're doing in our midst. We thank you for what you're doing in our midst, God. So as we sing this last song, God, we we lift up not just our voices but our hearts to you in this place. Would you be honored and glorified today, God? We pray, amen.